Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. On today's show, let's get spirited away. First up, what if cocktails were good for you? That'd be nice. You're mixing these botanicals and herbs that supposedly have these, you know, health benefits with a toxin. It's like saying that a Big Mac is good for you because it has dehydrated cucumbers in it as pickles. And then from alcoholic spirits to metaphysical spirits, we ask a medium the big questions. I hear, see, and feel the spirits that will walk in with, with you or a client as well as my own and let them communicate. Winston Churchill once said, the gin and tonic has saved more Englishmen's lives and minds than all the doctors in the empire. While we can't attest to the minds, the lives part is true. Quinine, the tonic in a gin and tonic, protected British colonizers from malaria, allowing them to continue pillaging and white man's burdening their way across the Indian subcontinent. So you see, drinking can be good for you, says your borderline alcoholic friend, but why stop with G&Ts? In our current moment of turmeric tonics and acai everything, can healthy cocktails cure what ails you? Joining us is Amanda Schuster, the senior editor-in-chief of The Alcohol Professor and the author of New York Cocktails. Thanks so much for coming on Moment 2 BK. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, first, let's drink to our health. You've yes. brought some goodies. What do I we got? Do. So this is um, one of the newest Copper and Kings gins, speaking of gin, out of Louisville, Kentucky. Just gonna. And what's really cool about it is it's apple brandy-based instead of your typical grain-based. And yeah. then it's got this cool infusion of um, hibiscus and rose and, and honey and all these yummy things. There's some grapefruit in there, too, and some other fun botanicals. And it's still technically gin. It's got juniper, but it's it's definitely kind of straying away from what most people associate with the classic gin. And it's this lovely pink hue. Yes. Was this like a Valentine's Day release? Or? I believe it was supposed yeah. to be, yeah. But, I mean, this is definitely something that... I'm looking forward to sipping more of in the springtime for sure. All right. Well, that's for you. Thank you. Let's get a little loose as we talk right. about um, healthy tonics. All right. Chin, chin. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in a real, that's very nice. Isn't it? Subtle botanicals, I would yeah. say, but the rose comes through. Yep. Um, so we're in sort of like a health and wellness moment where the idea is that you can drink your way to a healthier sure. detoxified body. Yes. Um, I'm just want to I want to share a couple of cocktails that are currently on menus in oh, New York. And this is I fun. should say <laughs> none of these, as far as I know, purport to make you healthier, but they do have like healthy ingredients. So. Um, Jimmy at the James has a chicken hot toddy. Uh, the ingredients are Hendrix gin, hot chicken stock, celery bitters, carrot, and parsley. I'm intrigued. Yeah. At $24. I'm intrigued. <laughs> um, this one is now off the menu because of the recent CBD ban, which we can talk about. But uh, the Jade Fizz at Peachy's hmm. had Pisco Moringa Powder which I just, I didn't even know what that was, but our uh, our other guest told me that it was um, an Ayurvedic wow. root, maybe? Uh-huh. Um, CBD oil, yuzu oil, bok choy greens, and egg whites. Um, and then there's one at the Wild Sun called the Garden Variety Margarita, which is a pretty straight-up margarita, except it's got kale ginger juice in it. Oh, my. Um, so what do you think? Is this a trend that you are seeing as well? Are, are people pitching you healthy cocktails? They certainly are. And what's disturbing about that is 
You know, it's one thing if you're saying, okay, these things, these drinks are flavored with these ingredients and they, they are flavored purposely to just to taste good, to, to elevate the drinking experience. But the pitches that I'm receiving are actually toting the health benefits of, of those ingredients in the drinks. And what you're doing is you're mixing these botanicals and herbs that supposedly have these, you know, health benefits with a toxin. And it doesn't matter how much of that goes into it, it's still a toxin. It's like saying that a Big Mac is good for you because it has dehydrated cucumbers in it as pickles. <laughs> right, 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 right. Can you, is there a, a most egregious PR pitch that you've received? Or is there a specific alcohol or cocktail um, that you feel is particularly offensive. Well, of course you get most of this stuff in January, right? Sure, and, dry January. Right, we all wrote our dry January piece. Right, <laughs> but but these things these drinks aren't dry. They are mixed with actual base alcohols, all of them. And so that to me and I and I know of quite a few other people who would agree with me, <laughs> this negates any sort of, you know, beneficial property of, you know, you can put as much wheatgrass as you want in your margarita. It's still a margarita. You're still drinking tequila. Is there an argument to be made, though, that like, you know, say you're doing Red Bull and vodka, <laughs> that if you do vodka with like beet juice, that has to be at least less bad for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> you're breaking you're breaking my heart. You're breaking my 21 <laughs> year old heart. When I was 21, I worked on, in service on the Lower East Side and we would go to the Stanton Social, which is now closed. Oh, man. But whenever I was feeling under the weather, I would order this green tea cocktail that they had and it had like echinacea in it and green tea and honey and I was like you guys I'm gonna be fine by tomorrow <laughs> because this is totally gonna put me back on my feet well I mean I think you can still you know have those ingredients in the cocktail and enjoy it as a cocktail but just remember you're also ingesting alcohol at the same time right you know I know people who are who are getting a cold and they're like oh I think I'm gonna have a daiquiri tonight because at least I'll have you know the fresh juice <laughs> in my, my drink and, and you still are getting your citrus certainly but you know it just depends on how many of them you plan on drinking what about whiskey with lemon and honey I feel like people drink that a lot when they have a sore throat sure any health properties there? Well, okay, so that goes into that goes into a whole other realm where I think I think there are some health benefits to a toddy if you have one of them. I I actually just came off of a terrible upper respiratory illness that I that hey hit me twice in January went away and came back again. It's and, probably dry January's fault. To oh, be honest absolutely, with you. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know there are, there are some drinks that will definitely temporarily relieve symptoms. You know the, the same way that that Nyquil will, will temporarily relieve symptoms. It's not going to cure you, it'll make you feel better for a little while. So for instance, I, I gin, we're back to gin again, is a very good anti-inflammatory. If you mix it with hot water and lemon, it's it not only is going to taste pretty good, maybe a little honey in there too, but it will temporarily help ease some of the inflammation in your chest and your in your nose and, and the things that are that are bothering you and, and certainly doing that with a little bit of whiskey is probably helpful too. You just you just can't sit there and drink them all day as medicine. Right. So maybe <laughs> there is something to this chicken hot toddy. You've got yeah. your bone broth, you've got some gin to take care of your, your symptoms. Sure. If it's Jimmy at the James, it's probably Johnny Sweat's idea to, to come up with that drink and he's a he's a pretty talented guy. He's really good at coming up with flavor combinations so um, I would imagine it tastes great, and at least you know if you're com if you're coming in from the cold, that's probably something that's very soothing. But is it going to be helpful for you? Probably not. So Jimmy at the James also had a CBD cocktail. Yeah. 
Um, and they had one at Grand Republic, his other bar. Yeah, I mean, CBD cocktails were popping up everywhere for a while. Yeah. And recently, uh, there's been a crackdown, right? Because it's not FDA approved, so you can't put it in in cocktails or in coffee or in food anymore. Yeah. Did you sample any CBD beverages while they were on the menu? <laughs> I have a lot to say about that, please, actually. Please, <laughs> please. The um, floor is yours. I have was, a drink. <laughs> <laughs> I was really disturbed by that trend, um, mostly because here you are taking a substance that is unregulated. Hey, let's put it in some alcohol. What could possibly go wrong, right? And the whole the whole attraction to CBD was as an anti-inflammatory also, but you know, something that relieves stress, apparently cleared up zits, it helped, <laughs> you know, there's the, people have, have used it for all kinds of things, anti-nausea. I mean, it, it's the property in marijuana when isolated that doesn't have any psychotropic benefits, so they say, but that will at least help make you feel, help make certain symptoms feel better. And people who have these symptoms, it's all kinds of symptoms, you know, to, from backaches to toothaches to, to other things. Um, the problem with it is that, first of all, there's no way of really truly measuring how much of that property is in the substance that you're tasting. Anyone who's ever had a pot brownie knows this issue. Right. There could be almost none. There could be way more than they say. The other thing is that to put it in alcohol, it has to be water-soluble. To make it water-soluble, it has to have an emulsifier. That ingredient is completely unregulated. You don't know how it got that way. And you also have to sweeten it with something because the stuff, let's face it, on its own will taste like plant farts. So you have to sweeten it with something and people are probably gonna stray away from, from putting sugar in it because they don't wanna say, oh, well, you know, now we've just put all these calories in your drink. So it's probably some sort of artificial sweetener that could be plant-derived, could be, could be chemically derived, but there are people who are allergic to them. And that ingredient doesn't have to be listed on the, sub, on the you know, how, whatever brand that you're buying of that substance. So it, it's a really, to me, incredibly irresponsible marketing campaign and, and a very irresponsible ingredient to use in your drink until there are federal re regulations that require every single ingredient to be on the label. So that is one trend that you are happy to see oh, we're man. hitting pause on. Yes. Did you, I mean, did you find that CBD oil had any effects for you or CBD cocktails? Well, I was I was going through a phase this past summer where I was I was having some back pain and some friends had said, you know, you should try this stuff. And I don't, I can't smoke anything because I have terrible lungs. I've had, I've had lung issues my whole life. So um, I thought, okay, I'm going to try this water-soluble CBD. And I, I purchased a brand that that came highly recommended and it is one of the ones that supposedly is is very truthful in its advertising and in its list of ingredients. The stuff it supposedly it was potable, the stuff tasted bloody awful, but that's not that's not the part that really bothered me. I did buy a low dosage, so I didn't get something that was going to that was going to really overpower me. And so the effects that I felt were very temporary. You know, for a second I'd feel like really relaxed, I'd feel pretty chill, but that would go away in maybe 20 minutes. But because I, you know, I am the alcohol professor, I, I would experiment a little bit. And so I went out with friends one night. I had maybe like two or three cocktails at a local bar, and I came home like hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna try some of the CBD before I go to bed. I had the worst dreams I have had in my adult life. Wow. When I, I, I mean, it absolutely, it was like an attack. It got every, it, 
it encompassed every anxiety I've ever felt and fear. I woke up remembering, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of lobsters and fire. Forgot about that. <laughs> cool. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and I thought, okay, was it just, was it hard alcohol that it's doing with? So next, next night, let me try it with wine. And the same thing happened. So then when I found out that there were all of these CBD cocktails going around town, I was like, oh, great. You know, that's the last thing I need. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting that you say that because um, I find when I drink Fernet, which is another alcohol that tastes like medicine, that mm. the, the drunk that I get is kind of unpleasant. Like even if I, I like the taste of Fernet, I enjoy it. Um, I just don't like how it makes me feel afterwards. Wow. So it is unusual how, I don't know, maybe there's something about these medicinal type potions sure. uh, impacting you psychotropically in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, listen, everybody's different. So so different ingredients are going to affect people in different ways. You can't categorically say that something is is you know beneficial to your health because one it is to one person or a small group of people. Right, right. And, you know, with CBD, nothing has been tested or regulated nothing. at this point. So, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the FDA says. And <laughs> I don't know, maybe it'll make a comeback. Yeah. Um, so we're drinking this gin from Kentucky. Yes. Uh, and speaking of Kentucky, I wanted to ask you a little bit about these tariffs yes. that have imposed on imposed on Kentucky bourbon and, you know, other American spirits and how that is impacting um, their export to other countries. Yeah. Um, well, one person I, I talked to in depth about this was uh, Scott Harris at Catoctin Creek. And one of the things he said, you know, there are so many craft spirits in the U.S. right now that they're all kind of in competition with each other and and new distilleries are popping up all the time. So one of the things that he decided to do was to see if he could capture some of the European market because the Europeans are so attracted or had been so attracted to American spirits since, you know, to them, it's it's a little bit um, of a of a luxury. It's it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting commodity. So um, there are there had been some craft spirits that had been very successful at catering to a European market, especially in big you know big cities, London, Berlin. They would go to shows like the um, like Bar Convent Berlin, and they'd set up booths, you know, and and bartenders from all over Europe. Hey, try these you know American spirits and get really excited about them and put them in their bar in Athens or put them in their bar in Paris. And that was going pretty well. And then the tariff thing happened. And because this forces retailers and and um, bar operators to raise prices so significantly, all of a sudden it just makes absolutely no sense to carry that product. And so they're just sitting in a warehouse right now. And people like Scott had been counting on that measure of the market for you know part of their their annual business. And that's just completely gone away. So American craft spirits are are taking a hit. As American craft spirits are taking a hit. It remains to be seen what it's going to do to more corporate whiskey. I mean, is Wild Turkey really going to suffer um, with with these tariffs? Probably not. I think bars are probably going to be you know carrying Makers and Wild Turkey and Buffalo Trace and and those brands overseas just because everybody still wants them. They can raise the price and people will pay them. But if but if you have a craft spirit that's less familiar on your back bar and it's really expensive, that's going to be a problem. Right, right. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Coming on the show. Thank you. Our next guest traffics in the healthy spirits of a different sort. 
Ever wonder if your deceased loved ones are watching over you, trying to communicate from beyond the veil? Maybe they're trying to tell you, don't fall for him, he's only after your money, or... I wouldn't order the tuna salad. Heather Carlucci is a psychic medium and medical intuitive who helps people communicate with the spirit world. We have so many questions. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so tell me a little bit about what it is that you do. And I feel like there are a lot of words, clairvoyant, mm -hmm. uh, psychic, medium, uh, medical intuitive. Tell me what it is exactly uh, that you do. Well, I do two things primarily. Um, I am a psychic medium, which means I hear, see, and feel the spirits that will walk in with, with you or a client as well as my own. And let them communicate. The other thing that I do is that I'm a medical intuitive. And for me, it works very separately from each other. Okay. And what does that mean, a medical intuitive? I've always been able to sort of key in and with what's wrong with somebody who couldn't be diagnosed. Wow. Okay. I want to get back to that. But okay. let's, start with, let's start with this spiritual part. And um, you said that the spirits that people carry around with them, does everyone sort of have like spirits attached to them? Everybody. Or? Everybody. Yeah. There's no such thing as really being alone. And you are know, they, people are always like, is there anybody in here? And I'm like, always. There's just never, you're never not with, with an energy or something. It's just the way it is. So how, am, how should I think about these spirits who are attached to me? Are they the same spirits all the time? Are they the energies of people who I knew? Are they randoms? Both. Okay. They're both randoms and people that you knew. Mm -hmm. um, there also can be people that were related to you in this life that, that have passed even before you knew them. Great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, that sort of thing. As well as random, sort of just energies that are drawn to you for whatever reason. How long have you had this ability to sense spiritual energy? I was born this way. As long as I can remember, I've been able to, to hear, see it, and know what was wrong with people. Were you scared by it? Like when you're a, a small child or because you've always had it, it's just something? Um, it's, you know, it's scary. It was scary for me when I would walk into a house and it would be, for lack of a better word, haunted. Because that's alarming. You know, uh, I, when I was around nine, we moved into our first big house. And that really... It was, you know, a very old house, and that really sort of, I wondered what was wrong with myself for most of the time. But largely, it wasn't so much that I realized I had it when I realized that not everybody had it. Mm. Do other people in your family have it, or do you know other um, people? I think uh, I would have to say, yes, I've heard in the past there were sort of other, I had an aunt, Sitsi, who the priest had to come and tell her to stop doing readings, you know? Because, yeah. But she was not, I had never knew her. I just heard about her. She was sort of infamous in my family. And my mother is highly intuitive, although she does not, she doesn't really connect it. Um, for me, I think it was just bigger than what I could admit or not admit. Mm -hmm. And so in addition to people carrying around spirits with them, places, mm -hmm. it sounds like also have spirits that inhabit. Oh, sure. Like a Energy sort of settle in. You know, you walk into, anybody can walk into a room or a new house and be like, I just didn't like the energy. I mean, you hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's like how it resonates with you. You know, I can walk into a house and be really alarmed by something and other people are in there and that are fine with it. You know, either they are not as, as intuitive about it or it's just an energy that resonates well with them. And when you talk about sensing this energy, do you hear it? Do you see it? What type of perception? I, I all the above, pretty much. There's something called the eight clairs, like clairvoyant, clairaudience, 
their cognizance and it goes it's full eight. I don't know them off the top of my head, but from what I can tell at this point, I've had I've had or experience all eight. Mm-hmm. So it just it sort of comes to me at this point, especially now that I'm doing this professionally, which is as you know sort of new. Uh, it you know it comes to now it's like a muscle that's being used. So now it just comes to me all the time. Is that exhausting? Uh, only if the client is exhausting. <laughs> you're like, you're going to need to book you're a like, couple really. sessions. <laughs> but like, can yeah. you... But no, sometimes it's it's uplifting. Okay. Yeah. Can you um, turn it down? Like, if yes. you're, you can. I can turn it down. I can't, unless, unless they're dying to get in. And then, it, you know, I hear it no matter what. But by and large, I have to turn it down in a New York City subway car, most definitely. In a crowded concert, most definitely. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of everything. That's That, to me, is, is the exhausting part. So you do this professionally, <laughs> as do. you mentioned. But you mm-hmm. didn't always. And no. For, so talk to me about that transition into embracing this as a profession. Well, as you know, I was a chef and restaurateur of note for... It was going on three decades by the time I left. Uh, and when I left, it was really... It was time. I was a true kitchen person. I was a chef's chef, for sure. I lived and breathed it. It was every day. It was about being passionate about it. It was about, it was nothing about it I didn't adore until I didn't. And you can't do that job and be that person if you don't absolutely love every minute of it. And it came really fast. It was almost like the wall went down. <laughs> it was like, now you have to do something else. My body couldn't take it. I, and I started not to care, which broke my heart because nobody didn't care about food and the people in the food world more than myself. Mm-hmm. And my entire, to this day, my entire social structure is still, you know, 75% chefs and people I've met in the business or my regulars that I've had over the years. Honestly, I couldn't get a job doing anything else. You know, you sort of, I realize that there's ageism as one big thing, even though I was very qualified for really wonderful positions in all different parts and of the food world that I didn't even imagine. Um, but it wasn't happening. So a friend of mine sort of sat me down and had a big talking to me, being like, you can, there's this other thing that you can do better than a lot of people, so, you know, which seemed outlandish to me. Why did it seem outlandish? You know, it's another closet to come out of, you know, guess what I do, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't as if my, my old position was really, you know, I wasn't pushing pencils and paper in the corner in office somewhere. I was pretty known for a long time in the food world. So it was really a matter of sort of posting it on Facebook and hitting click and keeping your fingers crossed and who's going to think you're out of your mind. Yeah, I know you socially and we have friends in common. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is only something that I knew about you fairly recently before you decided to go pro, but that it wasn't something that you led with, that maybe you had to trust someone in order to tell them, hey, also, there's this other thing that I do. So what has that been like, as you say, like coming out of the closet and I, I imagine <laughs> they call it, it's actually called something it's actually called the woo closet which I just found out recently which I thought was very funny that makes sense coming yeah. out of the woo closet yeah and you know also you know running your own business and having to brand yourself and you know talk to me about um you know some of the responses that you've gotten it's been it's been interesting uh as far as people in the food world I get a big percentage of people who are like that somehow oddly makes sense people had worked with me for a long time that maybe didn't even know me that well personally. There's an interesting sect of people that 
as you can imagine, coming up in the food world starting in the mid-'80s, it was a very different world. You know, for most of my career, I was maybe one of only two women in any given kitchen. If I was lucky, there was another woman in any given kitchen. Mm-hmm. And um, the generation of the chefs that I had to work with in order to receive the training that I wanted was definitely very old school, very European and very of a certain way. And sure. ones who made my life really, really difficult. And over the past two years, no names mentioned, uh, I will tell you more of these people who are becoming of a certain age and are not that well and are getting scared about their own mortality are the first person to pick up the phone to call me for a reading. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's get to the medical intuitive part Mm -hmm. a little bit. Sure. So you are able to sense illness in people? Yes. I mean, yeah, I guess in a nutshell, I am able to, yeah, and um, have been doing a lot of work most recently in the last year with a lot of doctors as well, which has been an amazing experience. And do you have any medical training or background? No, 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 no. And I do not claim to have any. So let's just, let's just make that known right here. So talk to me about how you work with doctors and with clients who may have some sort of ailment. Usually people come to me if they can't find out something or a doctor can't figure something out. Uh, It's been only recently that doctors are a little bit more open to talking to somebody like me. And by and large, it's sort of a, you know, I'm the the date nobody wants to admit to going on, sort of. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, and I don't, I don't claim to know anything, but very often just because of the way Western medicine works, we don't look at the bigger picture. And for whatever it's worth, if they don't understand why something returns, especially when I work with oncologists, because we see what certain things return, mm-hmm. we kind of know what's going on. We know to take it out, and they kind of know to zap it with chemo. Mm-hmm. But how do we stop it? Where does it come from, and why does it come back? And very often, you know, I will just have an answer that is more like, you're looking in the wrong area. It's actually coming from this. Or if the kidneys aren't, are running hot, which means overworking, then it's going to lead to something else in lower back that we sort of see because the pain will radiate down from one organ to another. So this is not coming from a medical background or a knowledge of like anatomy. It's something that you are sensing in yeah. people's I physical. Mean, I, my biggest interest actually is, you know, in my, you know, my off hours, I'm always reading about anything medical and I'm talking to the doctors that are open to talking because I don't always know what it is I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. But if I explain something to them, they'll know what it is. And they'll say, you know what? Great idea. Let me take a second look. It's not putting anybody at risk. It's just sort of opening up the possibilities as to what they're not looking at. Right. And I think we have a lot of that just in Western medicine in general. Do you ever face ethical quandaries about if you're sensing that someone is ill and yes. they <laughs> what do you do um a couple things other than take a deep breath <laughs> i lead them usually back to a health professional mm-hmm. in the best way possible um because in those moments, as much as I have to trust what I hear, see, feel, and otherwise, you know, I'm still a human being. And mm-hmm. I, I worry, you know, not for my own coverage as, you know, having getting in trouble for it because it's not that. Uh, I just, I sort of send them back to a place where they will sort of get treated um, and get better help than that. I, you know, I'm not somebody who has to give a diagnosis of, of anything extremely terminal. Um, if I see it, it's not. It's also not for me really to tell. 
Do you encounter similar challenges um, in your work as a as a psychic medium, where if there's a spirit that is like trying to contact someone, do they come through you? Like, do you have sort of um, I don't know. I'm just coming back to this issue of like, do you have ethical issues when you know something that somebody else doesn't? Be that medical or like something that like is being conveyed to you by a spirit. You mean like something something dark? Yeah, or 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 not even necessarily dark. Like, um, you know, if there's somebody who hasn't asked you to do a reading for them, but there's like a spirit that like is trying to tell them something. Do you go up to the person? You're like, hey, like you may not believe this, but like I've got a message for you, and you need to hear it. That rarely happens, but it does happen. Um, yes, and I often will. There is usually never something that's so detrimental that I feel like I have to sort of like walk into somebody's life out of nowhere. Right. I'm not I'm not a big when I read, I'm not a big believer in sort of like good and evil paradigm. I don't believe that really exists in the way that we know. I think I think all the evil on earth is about what we can handle. It's already here. I think we we are, we've we we're a fine mess of of being. Um but if something comes through and I absolutely have to say it, I definitely feel out the situation before I walk up. A big thing about this work, especially if you're doing medical, but just this in, this sort of work in general, you must check your ego at the door. You know, there's there's nothing that needs to be delivered that that needs to be crucial and delivered in a crucial way. Everything can be sort of given in a softer way and softer sort of communication. When I do a reading, I really have to make sure that my own prejudices, issues, everything is outside. Like I really have to sort of check myself. I have to listen really carefully to what I hear because very often I hear things that me as a person sitting there, like if you and I were out having a glass of wine somewhere, I have opinions, but I cannot... (laughs) I cannot possibly walk in with them when I'm dealing with somebody who has come to me and really wants to hear what's going on. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a very tender place. And when somebody comes for reading, they're there because they do get sort of this, what somebody has called like divine attention. It is their hour. It is only for them. And as far as I'm concerned, it only has to do with them. I would say 75% of what I read, I never remember once it's out of my mouth. Really? I never remember it. I make sure everybody has to record everything mm-hmm. when they have a reading with me, largely because people forget things and they remember them in different ways, whether it's how I say something, as we all do. But they must, they must record it, and I really have to step away from everything that has to do with me because you don't know who comes to see you. And if somebody comes to see you and you do this kind of work, they're really there for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're really there, and they really put their guard down. There's a lot of tears, inevitably, when I do a reading. What do you say to people who are skeptical of this? And, you know, I'll say that I myself am not um, that spiritual or woo mm-hmm. of a person, even though many of my friends are. I also acknowledge that there are things that, you know, we now acknowledge as science that 100 years ago people would have scoffed at. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, we couldn't see an atom before we could see an atom. Right. So what do you say to people who are skeptical of the work that you do? Well, I will say across the board, and I say this to everybody about my work, I am not that woo-woo about anything. I am really 
you know, I, I roll my eyes at half the things that come to the door that people are. And most of my friends are very spiritual, and I am not. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty much a salty old New Yorker. Like, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like, this is my terrain. This is who I am. And I am a hardened believer in science. I believe everything that I do is attached to science. There is just a link that we don't know yet. We're getting closer and closer to it because a lot of people I know that are actual scientists are really beginning to see what energy is and how it shifts and how it changes. But we do ourselves such a big disservice by insisting that it's two very different things. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do, how do we keep learning if we don't keep ourselves open to it? But people who, who don't believe, I always tell them the only important thing about this reading is that I believe in it. You don't have to. But when, you know, things sort of come together and things sort of come around or really the big step in believing I find with my, the work that I do is when I call out illness and they come back and they were like, you know what, you were right, you know, or I don't know anything about them and I can tell them what's going on with them in the moment or how they feel that second. Mm-hmm. It's those moments which really is just human connection. So that's, that's the only thing I can do is sort of do my work. And, you know, like anything else, you know, a lot of people when I was, I mean, I, this seems sort of petty, but when I was a chef and I was starting out, fine dining was not a big thing for the masses. Mm-hmm. Not everybody was, a, we didn't have the word foodie. We didn't have all those things. And people were like. It was a like, gentler, simpler time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody questioned a dress code. They right, just did right. it, you know. And even in that way, people were sort of skeptical. They're like, oh, you're going into pastry? Like, can you make pie? I'm like, I don't think I can make pie. You know, <laughs> I can do everything. I right. Do, you know, but as knowledge gets bigger and bigger, now we have a world full of everyone who knows better in the food world. And I think it's sort of going that way as far as anything, I would say, metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Because I think of it more as metaphysics than I do as something spiritual and woo-woo. You know, it took me a very long time to even think about crystals in any way because, as I say, I'm just a salty old New Yorker who happens to, like, hear things and see things. Right. You know? I mean, is it is it difficult for you then as somebody who is a psychic medium and medical intuitive mm-hmm. who is not spiritual? And I mean, it, I am spiritual. Well, don't get me wrong. I, I very much am. But I... I I think uh, in sort of the more like public realm, the way people sort of deliver it, it's just not for me. As you would say, starting a business and branding yourself, I can't do what's not me. You know, I couldn't do it in food and I definitely can't do it in Mm -hmm. this, you know. Is is it especially difficult then to see um, areas, I guess, of the more woo realm that you feel are exploitative of people or, you know, where people are being taken advantage of by charlatans? Are you like especially sensitive to that as somebody who yeah yeah I you know it's just like I hated being around bad chefs (laughs) you know there was a craft a fraud is a fraud fraud is a fraud (laughs) um definitely and anything I feel that is any taking of a culture I have a very hard time with Mm -hmm. um you know I think we I mean we live in New York if we all don't borrow from each other we don't we don't do anything but you know in every in every realm there is cultural appropriation right and we are seeing it more and more in this well and you say this as as a chef who cooked really legit indian food for yeah, a large part of your career absolutely yeah. in but i think there's also a very big difference between how you at how you pay homage to something that you really respect 
taking it's a big difference of of cooking food that you're drawn to and sort of being open to what what that culture has to say and really sort of taking their cultural uh, spiritual rights mm-hmm. you know that's r i t e right uh, right yeah. um i think there's a big difference between that Absolutely. i think there's a very you know, a different heaviness to it for sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's doing sage ceremonies, I also think should probably, uh, you know, think deeply about the appropriation of Absolutely. indigenous cultures. Absolutely. And- <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big yeah. sager, I have to right. tell you. It's not for me. It doesn't click for me. Right. Um, thank you so much. Before we go, anything <laughs> yes. I should know? Anything you should know? Yeah. I do a read every day on Instagram. So Heather Carlucci Medium. Okay. And, um, you know, come check out my website. There's all sorts of events and appearances, and I use a lot of curse words when I read. So, <laughs> and you also do you also do in person readings in New York. You do like group readings as well. I do a yeah. monthly group reading, and yes, I have a you know my appointment book is always open for person to person, and of course anything medical for sure. Um, and also um, for I'm very particular about people who sort of can't afford readings. That's why I sort of make sure there's always some sort of pro bono work going on, especially for people with medical issues. Okay. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. That's the show for today. Hope to see you next time. One Win 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 